This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. On November 2nd, the Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Enforcement released its annual report for fiscal year 2020. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton tells us that this year's report highlights enforcement's extraordinary efforts to identify wrongdoing and take meaningful action to protect American investors from misconduct, including in the face of the many challenges imposed by COVID-19. Stephanie Avakian, the director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, struck a similar chord, noting that the women and men of the Enforcement Division rose to the occasion and achieved extraordinary results. In the midst of massive change, one thing remained the same. We continued to vigorously enforce the federal securities laws to protect investors and maintain the integrity of the markets. So, just how impressive were the Enforcement Division's results in 2020? And what does the report tell us about the trajectory of the enforcement program? Special guest Sandra Hanna is here with us to unpack those questions and more today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Good to be with you, Chris. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the SEC's Division of Enforcement annual report for the fiscal year ended September 30th, 2020. Now, Kurt, in my house, there are a few very important dates leading into the fourth quarter of each year. The first is Halloween, which marks the last possible day in which my wife won't ask me if we can put up the Christmas tree. The second big date is that first weekend in November when we can put up the Christmas tree in earnest. And the third big date on our calendar is the release of the SEC's Division of Enforcement Annual Report, which I think is a holiday in almost anybody's house. (laughs) (laughs) It must be. I look forward to it every year. We've been a little bit more consistent about when it comes out over the last several years. It was always, you know, for a while, is it going to be mid-October? Is it going to be mid-November? But now it's like clockwork, you know, that first week of November, which is nice. And uh, I'm excited to talk about it today. As I mentioned up top, we're joined today by my friend, Sandra Hanna. Sandra is a co-founder and managing partner of the law firm Brew Hanna. She represents public companies, broker dealers, boards of directors, senior officers, and other organizations in civil, criminal, and regulatory matters in investigations by the SEC, DOJ, FINRA, and other state and federal agencies. She's also a nationally ranked attorney in government enforcement matters who has been recognized for securities enforcement matters in Chambers USA. And earlier this year, Sandra was added to the prestigious Enforcement 40, which recognizes the top 40 enforcement lawyers in America. Sandra, we're really glad to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So we want to kick off with a little background on the annual report. Each fall, after the completion of the SEC's fiscal year end in September, the Division of Enforcement releases its annual report to, quote, summarize some of the major accomplishments and key priorities of the division over the last fiscal year, end quote. And the Division of Enforcement's report follows a relatively standard format. First, providing a message from the director or co-directors in the few years leading up to this. Second, a focus on key initiatives the division would like to highlight from the past year. Third, a standard categorical discussion of facts and figures, including overall results, types of cases, disgorgements and penalties ordered, tips, complaints, and referrals, the whistleblower program, individual accountability, non-monetary relief obtained, and challenges. Although the major headings may change year to year, the content remains the same for comparability's sake. In fact, those long-term listeners of the Insecurities Podcast will remember way back in January of 2020, in our second episode, Kurt and I talked about our top five things to look forward to in 2020. And one of those focuses was enforcement trends we saw coming down the pike. Kurt, can you guess how well we predict the future? I mean, five out of five, I'm assuming. No? (laughs) Well, I had the cringe-worthy privilege of going back to listen to our infant second episode earlier this week. Uh, and looking back more than ep- than 20 episodes in the past can be a bit jarring. Although I do miss meeting you and recording in the office. Absolutely. Regarding our discussion of the fiscal 2019 report back then, 
and our thoughts on what lied ahead at the time, wouldn't you know it, Kurt, we did pretty good. Apart from a discussion of the lasting impacts of Kokesh and the potential for Lou to change the landscape of enforcement, disgorgements, and penalties, you, Kurt, were caught on tape saying you believe the division would continue its, quote, dogged focus on protecting retail investors, end quote. We'll talk more today about how right we were back then, Kurt. But first, I'd love to hear what trends you gleaned from this year's Division of Enforcement report in 2020. It was an interesting report this year, if for no other reason than so much of the enforcement program was impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And we're going to come on to that a little bit later in the discussion. But let me just sort of give you the top line figures. And I'm going to quote from the press release announcing the report. In fiscal year 2020, the SEC brought a diverse mix of 715 enforcement actions, including 405 standalone actions. These actions addressed a broad range of significant issues, including issuer disclosure and accounting violations, foreign bribery, investment advisory issues, securities offerings, market manipulation, insider trading, and broker-dealer misconduct. Through these actions, the SEC obtained judgments and orders totaling approximately $4.68 billion in disgorgement and penalties, a record amount for the commission, and returned more than $600 million to harmed investors. Significantly, through the division's efforts, the SEC awarded a record $175 million to 39 whistleblowers in fiscal year 2020, both the highest dollar amount and the highest number of individuals awarded in any fiscal year. I think the numbers are are pretty impressive, but I want to unpack that a little bit and put it in the context of some things we've seen in, in recent years. First, I know we've talked about this a bunch, Chris, uh, the folks at the SEC do not like it when we talk about statistics, but we kind of have to because if nothing else, they are objective criteria we can use to measure the, uh, maybe not the success, but at least the trajectory of the enforcement division. So if we think about the two top line figures here, the number of actions, which was 715 in fiscal year 2020, and the amount of penalties and disgorgement, which was 4.68 billion in fiscal year 2020, they, they kind of tell us different stories. Mm-hmm. 715 enforcement actions is actually the second lowest in the last 10 years. And frankly, that number feels a little bit more like the type of number we would have expected to see in the late aughts through maybe 2010. And it's interesting, particularly, and we're going to talk about this too, but particularly knowing that the busiest part of the SEC's fiscal year in terms of enforcement came after the pandemic, after the SEC went to a work from home environment. So a little bit interesting to see, you know, this is more than a dip. A couple of years ago, I think the number went down about maybe like 10 actions for the year. And we said, oh, it's a dip. It's no big deal. This is more than a dip. Uh, That said, this year, the $4.68 billion in penalties and disgorgement is the highest ever. Now, there were a number of cases that were driving that, a couple of sweeps, but still, it's it's impressive. It's particularly impressive when we see a meaningfully lower number of actions coupled with the highest ever penalties and disgorgement. Moving away a little bit just from from the numbers. During Chairman Clayton's time at the commission, the SEC Enforcement Division in its annual report and elsewhere always talks about five core principles that really guide the program. And they are focusing on Main Street or retail investors, focusing on holding individuals accountable, keeping pace with technological change in the market, imposing sanctions that effectively further enforcement goals, which I've always thought is sort of code for lower penalties, um, and constantly assessing their allocation of resources. And if we think about those those five core principles, they really come through again this year in the enforcement report. We saw a bunch of actions that are focusing on protecting retail investors. The division certainly had to think about its resource allocation during a pandemic. They've been doing more to leverage their internal technology and data analytics tools to help them find cases or to move cases along. And I think that uh, that the sanctions probably do reflect the enforcement goals, right? We saw them all over the board, you know, perhaps smaller ones involving smaller companies or, you know, a smaller number of harmed investors. And then we saw some at the other end of the range where where the conduct was particularly bad, or a bunch of investors were potentially harmed. So I think that this year's report, even though the numbers are a little bit wacky, totally in line with what we've seen from the Division of Enforcement over the past several years. The other thing I want to mention is really just what I think is also consistent with what we've seen. And it's a little bit more um, of a focus on just sort of doing doing their job 
allocating resources appropriately, bringing the cases, and less about messing around with the shape of the program. Before Chairman Clayton took over, we often saw new initiatives, new units, new dedicated teams, and we've seen a little bit of that over the past several years. But we've seen less of it. And it's really been more about let's focus on the blocking and tackling. Let's bring the kind of cases that we think really resonate with the mandate of the SEC. And that's where we're going to dedicate our energy. In fact, over the past several months, we've heard several times from Director Avakian and former co-director Pekin that they're not looking at new initiatives or new self-reporting programs. They really do just want to focus in on their bread and butter types of cases. And I think that comes through in the report as well. So, With that background, that context, I think we want to unpack it a little bit more. Let's talk about some of the particular cases or trends that pop out of the report. The first discussion point, the top line in any report looking back at at 2020, whether it's a a 10K, an annual report filed in the spring next year, another regulator doing a look back on on where they were in 2020, uh, it's going to be focused on the impact of COVID-19. And the division of enforcement is no different. In fact, the very first topic touched on in Director Ravakian's message was the division's response to COVID-19. She's quick to highlight not only the immediate focus of the division on potential misconduct in the areas of microcap, insider trading, and financial fraud and issuer disclosure, but also recommending trading suspensions for circumstances related to COVID-19. In fact, as we've heard throughout recent speeches and at PLI's The SEC Speaks in 2020 back in early October, the Division of Enforcement has been proud to say that the majority of its investigations and actions were taken after mid-March, and 150 of those were categorized as COVID-related. And a little inside baseball here, I always get hung up on definitions, but during a recent live panel discussion in October, uh, your co-host actually got to inquire of Associate Director of Enforcement Hodgman about what that definition of COVID-related means. And her answer described those cases that relate directly to false cures, advertising treatments, inappropriate vaccines or vaccine conclusions, and and PPE sales. So really kind of those hardcore COVID-related issues. Now, the enforcement report for this year, Sandra, really takes a positive light on the commission's reaction to, to COVID-19. Do you think their descriptions of, of their enforcement efforts should be praised? And, and do you think that they responded uh, meaningfully to the environment they were working in related to the pandemic? I have to say I'm pretty impressed with how the staff responded. Yeah, they brought fewer cases, 405 cases versus 600 something last year, but that's still pretty remarkable under the circumstances. I think it probably took four or five or six weeks for lawyers to sort of figure out how to work at home and they really kind of pulled through. I'm surprised there are only six COVID-related cases that have been charged, but I think it's something like 150 more COVID-related cases that have been opened during this period. That's right. Uh, That seems like a big number to me, but also not surprising. One other number, Chris and Kurt, that, that I think is important in this year's enforcement results is the amount of money returned to harm investors. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about $600 million this year. And that's about half of what it was last year. And that's a pretty significant dip. I think it, relates to the increase in securities offering cases that are designed to protect retail investors. So many of those cases that they brought are Ponzi scheme cases, and they'll never recover any money there. So that's probably part of the reason why $600 million is uh, the small amount that's returned to investors compared to prior years. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And um, perhaps something I should have mentioned up top when thinking about the trends we've seen over the last few years. You're absolutely right. It is one of the statistics that the co-directors have touted for several years. This is how much money we've returned to harmed investors. Didn't hear as much about that this year. And I I think you're right. Some of that has to do with the case mix, but it's an important, it's an important data point. And while we're talking about numbers, as we've, as we've mentioned, it feels like the bulk of the enforcement divisions work, at least in terms of the the settled cases that were publicly announced came after folks started working from home. Sandra, what what do you make of that? It seems like we were on pace for potentially a historically low number of enforcement actions. Then the pandemic hits and things really ratchet up. And as you mentioned, it wasn't because they were bringing such a high volume of pandemic-related cases. There were only six. How should we think about this sort of odd trend that we saw over the last fiscal year. 
I'm not really sure how to interpret it. My sense, and we learned this in the government shutdown last year too, is that if you stop for a month, it actually takes two months to get back up to speed. So maybe that's part of it. I really don't know how to interpret those results. And I, I also wouldn't draw any broad conclusions on them. The truth is they did do have a bang up uh, second half of the year. Maybe it could have been more if they didn't have lose six weeks to trying to figure out how to work remotely. Who knows? But all in all, the numbers are pretty consistent uh, with prior years. The number of cases are pretty consistent with prior years under the circumstances. The only place that's really surprising to me, perhaps I shouldn't be surprised about it, is in the accounting cases. Hmm. There are fully one-third fewer accounting cases this year and disclosure cases this year than they were last year. It's at 62 down from 90-something last year. That is that is a drop that I don't really understand, except when you think about the allocation of resources to retail investor cases. It's a, it's a pretty big drop. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one of the things we want to get to. And Chris, I know you're probably going to want to talk about the accounting cases too. But I want to talk a little bit about the case mix uh, this year because it's different than what we've seen. Uh, You're absolutely right. There were noticeably fewer accounting cases. We also saw that the number of securities offering cases jumped to the head of the pack uh, where where it hasn't been for quite some time. It's usually one of the you know two or three or four largest chunks of cases. But this year, it is far and away the most cases that the enforcement division brought, um, followed by cases involving investment advisors or investment companies, which typically is the the category that leads the charge. Uh, and if you lump them together with uh, cases against broker dealers or their registered representatives, um, I usually like to think about them together. Uh, that's always the biggest piece of the pie by far. Sandra, how are you thinking about the change in case mix. Is it catch as catch can, or do you think there have been some changes in priorities? Well, there's no doubt that the retail priority has changed the case mix. If you look at all of those security offerings cases, those are cases involving, you know, crypto, just regular and other regular sort of generic Ponzi scheme cases. And that's consistent with the retail consumer focus. I don't think there's anything surprising there about it. One thing that did surprise me was the investment advisor cases have dropped significantly. As you said, they historically have been a a big book of business for the commission. And that number is down a lot. I'm not sure what to attribute it that too. Do you have any ideas? No, I'm not. And I think it's very odd. And just to you know, put a little bit of meat on that bone, in fiscal year 2019, there were 191 investment advisor actions, which comprised 36% of the SEC's caseload. In fiscal 20, there were 87 investment advisor actions, which comprised only 21% of the entire caseload. So it, it really is a meaningful drop. I find it particularly interesting because I think that the SEC enforcement division has said time and again that where they find, you know, most fraud, most misconduct that is harming retail investors, it is at the intersection of investors and financial professionals, which is, you know, either investment advisors or or broker dealers. You would think because they continue to to talk about how they see their number one priority as protecting retail investors that this number, right, the area where they find the most misconduct would not drop off. I'm not sure what to make of it. It, it really is, I think, perhaps the most striking statistic that came out of the, the report this year. Well, Kurt, I don't want to let you off the hook here either. You know, on behalf of our listeners as well as your co-host, I've been hearing about this regulation that went into effect about halfway through the calendar year this year that I thought might bring about a little bit of difference in in terms of the numbers reported related to investment advisors. That, of course, being uh, Reg BI. Uh, getting to listen to our earlier episode, you did mention that the firms that are being inspected and, and examined in early July might be uh, shaking a little bit, worried about how how the SEC would approach these Reg BI issues. But it looks like there might not be that that trickle down effect of, of enforcement actions related to that regulation at least through the the end of September of this year. Well, let's be clear. You know, there was there was Reg BI and there was Form CRS, and you know, Form CRS is what's going to most directly impact investment advisors. Whereas Reg BI is really a broker dealer issue, and I think that you know the staff has been pretty clear that they're not trying to play a gotcha game in terms of Reg BI and Form CRS compliance. They were going to honor and acknowledge firms' good faith efforts to comply with the rule, and at least through their first, certainly through 
calendar year 2020 in their examinations of firms, they were going to look to see, you know, who's getting it right, who's getting it wrong, what can they glean or learn from those examinations and offer more guidance to the market to help them get it right. So I, I don't think we're going to see Reg BI or form CRS related enforcement anytime soon, barring some really bad conduct. And I do think I've said that before on the podcast. Sandra, do you have a view on that? I think you're right. I think it takes a little while to trickle down through enforcement. So maybe 2022, or we'll start to see some enforcement actions related to Reg BI. The same is true, Chris, on the accounting side for you, uh, right? We have new auditing standards in some areas and new accounting standards in others. And those will be implemented this year, mostly. And we'll start to see more accounting cases and auditor cases related to them coming up. But it takes a while to filter through. Of course. All right. We've been talking at a relatively high level about the case mix and and how the numbers broke out this year. But I know we want to spend a little bit of time talking about some particular trends or cases that that jumped out to us, at least when we looked at the annual report. So, Chris, why don't you kick us off with the first theme we want to touch on? For those of you who read the report regularly, you know, sometimes the trends you have to pull out of of the cases that are brought and, and the actions that are described, you know, require you to read a little bit between the lines. Now, there's been a standard drumbeat from the Division of Enforcement's annual report over the past few years for those famous 102E cases or suspensions and bars levied against accountants or lawyers that prohibit them from, quote, appearing or practicing before the commission, end quote, as an element of the resolution of an enforcement action. As our good friend and fan of the podcast, Russ Ryan, recently wrote in a LinkedIn article, the power of the SEC to hamstring accountants and attorneys has not faced a significant challenge since the passing of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act in 2002. Sandra, I know there was a case towards the end of the year that caught your eye regarding some of these 102E issues and the division's evolving thinking on the matter. Well, first of all, let me say you should always listen to Russ Ryan because he's typically right. Uh, And I can't think... True. It's been true for years. I can't think of any time somebody has challenged the 102E. In my experience, though, it is the one thing that often stands between settlement and litigation with the SEC. And so there are some heartening things I've seen this year uh, that I want to point out that may change that trend a little bit. There uh, there are two cases, one that I can't talk about, uh, Meredith Simmons. It was the very last case at the end of the fiscal year. And uh, another case that was a broker-dealer case brought against a guy named Craig Berdellis. And he was a supervisor at an institutional trading desk, a Munibon trading desk that disguised itself uh, as retail to get access to new issue bonds. And rather than just suspend or bar him, what the commission did is pretty interesting. It carved out an exception where he was suspended from acting as a supervisor at the trading desk, but he could still practice and still work. And therefore, because he wasn't facing a suspension or a bar, it was much easier for him to be able to settle this matter. A similar result was reached uh, in part of Meredith Simmons' settlement with the SEC, which prevents her from acting as a CCO, but not from being unemployed. So she could work, just not as a CCO. And I think that's a, that is a finely tuned difference between settlement and litigation for people facing either a bar or, or suspension or some sanction under 102E. As an accountant going over this for the third or fourth time in my career, you know, reading the very wide interpretation of, quote, appearing or practicing before the commission and some of the cases that have come out uh, since uh, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act at Section 602 is what uh, kind of reinforced the SEC's power related to 102E cases. But the the general premise is that if you're an accountant who's barred or suspended from appearing or practicing before the commission, almost you can't touch any data, any f- internal financial reports that lead up to anything that's submitted to the commission. So it's not just being at the forefront, being the chief accounting officer, or even in a controller position. It's, you know, for some interpretations, all the way down to just being an FPNA staff. You can't help out. You can't do the financial reporting, uh, you know, as a line uh, accountant within a company that's reporting to the SEC. So that broad interpretation, it sounds like, Sandra, with some of the cases you referenced, might be getting fine-tuned into a little bit more reasonable, if not still effective, response to some of the enforcement actions we've seen. 
For accountants and lawyers, 102E is a death knell to your career, yes. period. You can work on private company cases. Maybe you can uh, work on your grandmother's taxes, hmm. but maybe not because there are often follow-on proceedings from the states also. So you could be disbarred if you're a lawyer or you could have your license taken away as a CPA from a state. That often happens because mm-hmm. the state typically automatically gets a copy of the resolution right. and will come out. And it's also very, very hard uh, and atypical to be reinstated, even though you technically have the right to reapply. I've seen some things suggesting that the commission is doing a better job of reinstating people, but those cases are few and far between. And as a practical matter, if you have been barred from practicing before the commission, what big four accounting firm is going to hire you back in the world of public auditing? It's just not likely to happen, right? Yeah, it's almost kind of laying out the the question for why at a point down the road. Um, and it's going to be hard to sell as an auditor or as a consulting partner to put someone with a 102E black mark on their record uh, on your engagement. It's it's a scary, scary area, but it sounds like the SEC is, is being a little bit more targeted in how they're responding to it. I hope so. It makes sense. I think it would go a long way to reduce the number of litigations that happen and makes a settlement posture easier and more palpable for my individual clients, for sure. To pivot back to and continue on the discussion of accounting, you know, I want to take a page out of Director Ravakian's book. You know, the topic of financial fraud and issuer disclosure was actually first on the list of initiatives covered in the body of the report. So I'm a little proud of that, even though we talked about some of the drop off in numbers. Uh, and Kurt, you know as well as our listeners do that I'm a sucker for a good accounting fraud case. In our most recent episode, we talked a little bit about two cases that happened within the past 18 months uh, relating to Marvell and Super Microcomputer. Uh, but we can't leave out another matter that got significant attention from the Division of Enforcement that related to Diageo. Although the conducted issue occurred in 2014 and 2015, the practices employed to mislead investors in its periodic filings were taken straight from the accounting fraud playbook and a lot of the topics we talked about on a previous episode. And I really get excited anytime we can work days, sales, and inventory uh, into a, a complaint or an enforcement action brought by the SEC. So the long and short of it, or at least from my read of the, the order, is that Diageo was partaking in a scheme of channel stuffing in which they were shipping products ahead of schedule, very similar to some of the fact patterns we've talked about previously on the podcast, in order to meet two key metrics within uh, their reporting and to meet analyst criteria for that that period. So their quote overshipping scheme was targeted to meet analyst expectations related to organic net sales growth and organic operating profit growth, both of which were tracked very closely by the market. So again, we're seeing that kind of we talked a bit about monitoring the market versus managing to the market on a previous episode. This, for all intents and purposes, the way the order reads, uh, is Diageo leaning into that managing towards expectations and overshipping their goods, uh, you know, a, a purveyor of, of liquor, beer and wine ahead of time to their major distributors uh, in order to kind of cover those metrics as they're reported out. So, again, I could spend, you know, three, four five hours talking about the impact on on how distributors are, are doing their depletion rates uh, and what the <laughs> the day's uh, sales and inventory would look like for a company that's overshipping. But, you know, Sandra, I know you pay close attention to a lot of the accounting issues going on, too. What did you take from the report from an accounting perspective? Well, first, I agree with you. I think uh, a good accounting case always involves or often involves inventory, and it can be kind of fun. The interesting thing about Diageo to me is that it's a channel stuffing case, but with no impact on the financial statements. It's settled, it's charged and settled as a pure disclosure case, right? Not really a true accounting fraud case, just a disclosure matter. So what is the point of the staff bringing a case like this when there is no result on the financial performance of the company and the numbers don't need to be restated and they're not you know, materially off at least? I think it's a focus to, it's a sort of a flip again, we've been here before, from quantitative materiality to qualitative materiality. And there are a couple of cases I can think of in the last five years where they have done that, where it was just purely a qualitative issue, but it really is few and far between, in my memory at least. And some of the other things we see from the accounting perspective is kind of that blurred line between you know, what would traditionally be maybe 15 or 20 years ago, a direct FCPA case and kind of how those are written and enacted now. They seem to bleed a lot more into that accounting posture, Sandra. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of commentary and criticism of the staff taking the FCPA as an accounting 
uh, filing it as an accounting case instead of a bribery case, you know, all those cases where they don't charge 30A. And that's pretty controversial, but they keep doing it. And they certainly believe that that the statute provides them the authority to do it. But overall, I expect to see many more of these kinds of cases going forward. You know, the sort of shift to disclosure regime away from a numbers regime. So at the same time, remember the EPS initiative was launched by the division and a number of cases have been settled there. And those are the same kinds of cases as Diageo, really. It's where companies are managing to earnings forecasts or analyst expectations and, you know, and not to true gap accounting as they should. And we've talked a lot in the past uh, on the podcast about some of the tools and abilities the commission has to, to move forward with those types of initiatives and those actions. And the nuance to the EPS initiative is that the commission relied on sourcing those cases through data analytics and through analysis of those specific changes in the EPS numbers, more so than some of the more traditional methods of of analysis. So always good to see them you know, using that limited resources that they have, especially in, in 2020, the year of COVID, to bring a lot of those actions forward. Yeah, I think that's right. And and we'll talk later about what to look forward to in in this year's results. And I think we're going to lot we're going to see many more big data kinds of cases, you know, they have the ability to do it, it really is smart for them to do it, um, to focus their resources on these kinds of big cases. It's a good idea. And Kurt, I know on the technology front, cryptocurrency and ICOs have also been a hot button issue this year for the commission. Yeah, they absolutely have. And I think they will continue to be. There were a number of cases that came out this year that that relate to initial coin offerings or ICOs or digital tokens. And I think it's now become really part of the enforcement program. And I think we should expect it to be for the foreseeable future. The enforcement division now has uh, dedicated resources and dedicated staff members who are focusing on those issues in particular. And I think that really what we saw this year are, I I would put them in three buckets that I think are where we should expect these kind of cases to to shake out in the future. So the the first are really um, what what I would call unregistered offerings. There were several cases that involved unregistered sales of digital tokens. And these are almost kind of technical cases, right? You sold a, a, a something that the SEC thinks is a security and you did not register. The cases in that area were Bitclave, Boontech, Unicorn, and famously, of course, the Telegram case. I think what we can glean from them though, is kind of what the SEC thinks is a security in the cryptocurrency space. I think we should always pay attention to unregistered offering cases with respect to digital assets, because we're still learning a little bit about how the staff is trying to put these types of of products or offerings or or fit them within the Howey framework. So the, the first bucket was the unregistered sales. The second bucket is just fraudulent ICOs. Uh, and there, there's always going to be, you know, cases that are just straight up pure fraud. Maybe there was in fact no token or, you know, the company didn't do the thing that it purported to do uh, or, or it was otherwise just operating as a fraud. There was no legitimacy to, to the issuer. And there were a handful of those throughout the year. The last bucket is what I would call the celebrity touting cases. And I think this is probably everyone's favorite to talk about. If for, for no other reason, the jokes are endless. We saw a case uh, in action against Steven Seagal uh, for failing to disclose payments he received for promoting an ICO conducted by an entity called Bitcoin2Gen. Um, we also saw similar cases, basically the exact same allegations uh, against the rapper T.I. and against John McAfee. And these are on the back of cases we saw last year against uh, DJ Khaled and boxer Floyd Mayweather. They're interesting. They grab headlines. I think they're probably good good press for the enforcement division in terms of getting investors' attention, uh, encouraging them to uh, to sort of be vigilant and be wary when they're thinking about investing in cryptocurrencies. That's sort of my my high level on what's going on in the digital assets space. Sandra, I know it's something you pay attention to as well. What jumped out to you this year? The most significant thing to me is not uh, what kind of cases they brought. They're they're pretty much, as you said, expected cases, right? Especially your buckets one and two. Those are really just run-of-the-mill securities offering fraud cases, the SEC's basic bread and butter. What I learned this year, though, is 
of the remarkable level of cooperation between the SEC and the CFTC. Mm. And we see that in a couple of litigated matters, and they are really working hand in hand very closely to coordinate their efforts. They think in some cases there would be overlapping jurisdiction with the CFTC, and they are very coordinated in their response to dealing with all things crypto uh, and blockchain, actually. So maybe you could see a world where there would be a fight between the SEC and the CFTC about who really has jurisdiction there and the products are not quite as that sophisticated yet to have a full out war between the agencies. But I'm really I can't recall other than the FCPA world. uh, I don't know of other instances when the staff is that coordinated with another agency. I completely agree. It has been interesting that there really hasn't emerged a, a turf war, for lack of a better word, between the between the two agencies. They do seem to be coordinating closely together. And somehow they seem to form a consensus view about whether a particular digital asset or token is something that's within uh, the purview of the SEC or the CFTC. It has been remarkable to see that level of coordination or cooperation between the agencies. So I think that's a great takeaway. As far as enforcement goes in this space, it's not going to slow down going forward. We're going to continue to see these cases, whether they fit in these three buckets or not, uh, we'll have to wait and see. But I think for the moment, we kind of know what the landscape is. All right, let's touch on one final topic or trend. And this, of course, is is one of my favorites, and it relates to cases involving financial institutions. And I think it's important because we just continue to see it, you know, year after year. And there were some interesting ones this year. You know, there was a, a sort of a, a sweep, if you will, or a series of cases that involved pre-released ADRs that um, resulted in, in quite a few cases over the last couple of years and I think actually helped buoy the uh, the SEC's numbers this year, certainly in terms of the amount of penalties and disgorgement as uh, they resulted in you know several hundred million dollars of penalties. They are technical cases, perhaps, and we do see you know reporting and other kinds of technical cases every year. Not sure what you know, what will be the next pre-released ADR style case or the next, you know, we've also had the share share class selection disclosure initiative cases, um, which has sort of wound its way through. I don't know with respect to financial institutions, what is going to be the next wave of cases we'll see. Although actually uh, we are recording this uh, episode on November 13th, Friday the 13th, and we may have gotten a little bit of a hint today. And it was another one of the bullets I wanted to talk about with respect to financial institutions. And that is uh, the recommendation or sale of complex products, particularly inversed or leveraged uh, exchange-traded products. It was something that they talked about in the annual report. We've seen a few cases over the last couple of years in this space. And today, the SEC Enforcement Division announced five new cases where they charged three in, uh, three investment advisory firms and two dual-registered broker-dealers and investment advisory firms for their sale of complex exchange-traded products that were essentially volatility-linked e- ETPs. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward. It's, it's becoming a, a big part of the conversation at the SEC from an enforcement and, and a regulatory standpoint. The, the last case that I wanted to talk about is just, it's one that's interesting. I've, I've sort of heard about these issues around the edges. You know, I've talked with folks about them over the last couple of years, but they are cases that involve things like ephemeral messaging applications and text messages. And, you know, what are, what are companies or financial institutions obligations to maintain those records? And there was a, an enforcement action this year against a company called Jones Trading. And essentially the allegation was that they failed to preserve text messages uh, that the SEC wanted in connection with an investigation. The case didn't amount to much more than that, but it is really interesting that I think we're going to start to see uh, more of these cases, both from the DOJ and the SEC, where they are looking at your record keeping, but they're also looking at some of these uh, some of these messaging applications that your employees have on their personal or company devices at home. And you know what are you doing to make sure that you're maintaining those records? So I don't know. For me, those were the things that jumped out in terms of of uh, uh, FIs. Uh, Sandra, do you like any of that or did you see something else? 
No, I think you're right about all of that. Have you ever tried to produce documents from Slack messages? It is so difficult to do. Um, So I'm not at all surprised to see the SEC focusing on new technologies as people find other new ways to circumvent the record-keeping requirements. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. It's something that any regulated entity should be thinking about because I don't think you want to find yourself in a position where you know the SEC or or the DOJ maybe more so is asking for you know can you give me your WhatsApp messages uh, and and you just say no no we don't <laughs> we don't have in place any systems or procedures to keep our arms around that it's not it's not a good posture so something to think about going forward for sure which I think is a good segue to what we want to talk about next. And that is looking ahead to the next fiscal year. We're already, I guess we're about a month and a half into it now, but what should we expect to see in the SEC's annual report for the fiscal year 2021? And Sandra, I know one of the areas where you're expecting to see changes is how the SEC Enforcement Division responds to the the Lou case. Uh, we've talked about it a bunch on the show. Our listeners will recall that in Lou, the big question was whether or not the SEC could seek disgorgement in cases it brings in federal district court. And the answer was, was sort of yes in the right circumstances. And uh, the Supreme Court put some restrictions around the circumstances in which the SEC may in fact seek disgorgement. And it's kicked off a conversation about what is the SEC going to do. So, Sandra, what should we expect to see in that space? A a couple of things. One is, I think we'll see what we saw in a case that came out today on Friday the 13th against uh, the former chairman of Wells Fargo, who paid on a non-fraud-based charges. He was charged with 17 violations of 17A2 and 3 of the Securities Act. He paid $0 in disgorgement and $2.5 million in a penalty. And that kind of penalty number, absent 10B fraud charges, uh, is unheard of. I did some digging today and didn't find anything comparable. There have been other big penalties, but only in 10B cases. And maybe that's a distinction without any difference to non-geeks. But I think it's a really important trend in what we'll start to see going forward. And in my own practice, I've seen it too. The SEC is putting less focus on disgorgement and more on penalties, and they'll do so uh, with increasing frequency. They'll, they'll have to. They're going to get the pound of flesh one way or the other. I, I think that's right. And I mean, I think that Director Avakian has been as clear as she can be on this point um, when I've heard her talk about Lou a couple of times over the last several several months. And I think what she said is something like, listen, there's going to be a rebalancing. If before we were trying to you know, figure out how much is disgorgement and how much is penalty, now, if there's any question, we're just going to sort of reflect it as a penalty to the extent that we are allowed under, you know, applicable statutes. It's an interesting trend because, you know, I know I've had cases, Sandra, I know you have too. And Chris, I'm sure you've been involved in them too, where you you spend an awful lot of time trying to calculate the amount of disgorgement or figure out, you know, who's it going to go to, you know, were these legitimate business expenses, all, all all of these kind of things. And, if what we're really going to see is the staff just defaulting to a, eh, it's a penalty type of position, um, I, I think it's a meaningful change for regulated entities and for practitioners um, who practice before the commission. And I think to put a finer point on it, Kurt, right, the idea of disgorgement is to bring back into the fold or return to to the harmed individuals, you know, some of the ill-gotten gains is, is the term of art related to that. But to the degree that the commission is enacting an objectively calculated figure to bring about some equity in in restoring fraud or, or some some violative issue, but not providing an objective way to analyze the application of that, it sounds like it's much easier uh, to flip back to the penalty side so that that pound of flesh can still be gotten, but there's not this very complex conversation about what is a legitimate expense, what is not a legitimate expense, what was in furtherance of a fraud scheme or or one of those ill-gotten gain categories that are well-known out there. So I think it's kind of a shift like you talked about from a, a complex and well-meaning idea back to something that's a little bit uh, straighter, if not as well-intended as discouragement might have been. Well, no matter what you call it, though, you still have the problem of how do I identify and return money to shareholders? Yes. You know, 
uh, at just, you know, and this is what the class action lawyers face. It's very difficult to do in most cases to really identify who was harmed in most of the cases that that folks like us work on anyway. Do do we get around that at all if it's just a penalty, right? I mean, that goes to treasury. I th- I mean, really, it, 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 the dollars that are marked as disgorgement, are, I think, are where you really have that concern. So I don't know. Are they avoiding a problem here potentially? No. I mean, they can fair funds it, right? They can decide to deal with it however they want. Yeah. And there's always the possibility of some statutory regime change to enable them to get disgorgement. But in the meantime, I think this is more art than science and we'll continue to see until we have clarity from the courts and the legislature, I think we're going to continue to see more large penalty dollars like we did today. And I think that'll also lead to us, you know, going back to that kind of table of contents analysis and looking back at the past four or five years of the enforcement report, uh, distributions to harmed investors was included up until this year, 2020. Uh, It was dropped off the list. So uh, my guess is we're not going to see a clear cut discussion of that uh, in enforcement reports in the future if our analysis holds here. Yeah, I think that's right. And finally, kind of looking forward, you know, Kurt and I talked a little bit about it on a special uh, election edition of the Insecurities Podcast about the implications of uh, a pending Biden administration to the commission. But Sandra, I'm interested in where you where you fall on what you see happening at the the top end of the of the commission. I am, like many people, still believing it will be Biden. Um, I think we're pretty much there. And let's say Biden chooses somebody like Elizabeth Warren to be the new commissioner of the SEC. I think what we'll see there, and it probably will not be Elizabeth Warren, but it could be somebody that someone like her. Uh, What we'll see then is a return to a focus on big banks, I suspect. Right. And we'll see those cases come back and an additional focus on charging individuals. Many people still think it's it's wrong that very few individuals were charged in the last financial crisis, and they're going to want to see more individual cases. We're already at 72% of cases involving individuals, so I'm not sure how much higher it can go, but we'll start to see big Wall Street cases again. And obviously, that has a trickle-down effect as well as the commissioners themselves uh, change posture and, and even in seats at the table. Uh, I'm interested too about your thoughts, Sandra, on, on kind of the director of the Division of Enforcement itself. Stephanie Avakian has has been around for a while and her co-director, Steve Peakin, stepped down earlier this summer. So I don't know if you've got any tea leaves you can read about where the Division of Enforcement is going in the future as well. I don't really have any tea leaves. I wouldn't be surprised if Stephanie stepped down and and Mark perhaps took over and they assigned a new deputy director to assist him. I suspect that really could happen. And the priorities of the enforcement division will change depending on whether someone like Elizabeth Warren is the new commissioner or not. The enforcement priorities will always change depending on the commissioner's priorities. So in the last few years, we've seen the focus on retail. I suspect it'll swing away from retail or not too far away, um, a little bit away from retail, but to also include big cases. So it'll just be consistent with democratic priorities. I think that that makes sense. It's going to be really interesting to see who who does ultimately become the next chairperson uh, for the long term and, and what that means both for the commission's priorities and for the division of enforcement. Uh, it's been really interesting listening to uh, the increasing number of names that I see uh, thrown out there. There was an article today in, in Bloomberg by Ben Bain where, you know, I, among the names were Gary Gensler and Preet Bharara and uh, Chris Brummer and Rob Jackson and Kara Stein. You know, the, the list kind of goes on and on. And I think each of them would, would bring their own sort of talents and focus to the commission. So I'm excited to see what's next for the commission. I do think one other thing that's next and that we'll see more of whoever the commissioner is, we'll see this sort of smart enforcement like we see with when they use big data, like in the EPS and other initiatives. If it's a really good way for the commission to marshal its resources efficiently and frankly, to increase its numbers, to bring a large number of cases in a smaller period of time. I think we'll also see a focus on shortening the average time of an investigation. Uh, you know, I think it's 34 months or something now. And there are a couple of instances where companies who settled, I think BMW was one of them, cooperated to such an extent that the commission was able to open and close its investigation in 12 months. So if you, you know, sort of combine cooperation efforts with big data, we could see a real decrease uh, in the length of time it 
takes to investigate and close a case, which is good for clients. Yeah, it is. I think it's good for everyone. I think it's good for the markets too. When you have something a little bit more like swift justice and that the cases that are being announced reflect you know, conduct or practices that have happened recently and not five, six, eight years ago. I mean, I know it's been something that the co-director has focused on over the last couple of years is I think what they've referred to it as, as uh, accelerating the pace of investigations. I mean, I think they're doing better, but there's certainly room to improve. And so, I don't know, maybe it's a it's a good note for us to end um, on a hopeful note and look forward to an annual report in fiscal 2021 that's called Smart Enforcement. <laughs> me too. Well, thanks for having me, Kurt and Chris. I really had a great time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. And, and hopefully, you know, we can get you back on next year about this time to talk about that report, Smart Enforcement. You can use it. I give you the line. I love it. That's great. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Sandra Hanna of Brew Hanna. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be well, everyone, and see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.